You're listening to the British Birth Stories podcast, the place where mothers from around the country share their birth stories. I am your host, Ashley Brennickmeyer, and I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much to everybody who is tuning in to the very first episode of British Birth Stories. Like I just said, I'm Ashley Brennickmeyer and I'm the founder and host, and this is my first podcast. (laughs) And um, this is also my first time sharing my birth story with anybody other than Rupert and my medical care professionals. So um, let's do it. (laughs) Um, I think I'll just jump in. It's probably easiest to say, obviously, you can probably hear that I'm not British, Um, I might be at some point during this podcast because I'm waiting for my UK passport, but, uh, I am originally from California and I've lived here now for six years. I moved here when I married my husband who is British and his name's Rupert. And I, we all live together with our toddler daughter who's two and a half in Northwest London. Yeah. So I guess I'll just jump right in with the our journey to getting pregnant, which is in 2017 in the summer, we were super lucky to fall pregnant really easily. (laughs) And, um, I'm laughing because it was, it's like a stark contrast to what happened in the current. Oh yeah. I'm also currently pregnant. I feel like I should note that in the middle of the pandemic, like so many other women and birthing people also are, I'm due roughly in January. So I'm about 26 weeks recording this podcast and I fell pregnant easily with my first and not easily with my second. So I've had both experiences, but with my daughter, it happened first try, which I was very surprised that that happened full stop. (laughs) Um, But then that was the only part that was easy. I was instantly completely overwhelmed with sickness. (laughs) It was like clockwork at exactly six weeks, all the way up till 42 weeks which was a fun pregnancy to have to go through, especially because everybody told me at 12 weeks that it would get better. When that came and went, they told me at 16 weeks, it'll get better. And then when that came and went, it just was, it just kept going. And so I felt pretty isolated out of the get go with how I was feeling versus what other women were feeling and, or how Instagram was portraying pregnancy. I was pretty angry (laughs) pretty quickly It was not a fun feeling to feel like I was the only woman in the world struggling and not having a good pregnancy where every morning I'd wake up and ask myself, is this the flu or is this pregnancy? Will I be able to get out of bed today? I could not look at screens. I had intense migraines from like 5 p.m. on almost every day where I had to just sit in a dark room. That would be the end of my day. I had severe nausea, severe heartburn, sciatica. I mean, just everything except for I didn't get swollen feet. That was like my only ailment I didn't get. So that was fun. In that sense, I I literally glowed. <laughs> um, I had to change care providers midway through my pregnancy around 20 weeks because my I was with Kathy Roberts at the Portland Hospital, which is one of the main four private hospitals in London. And her insurance changed something along those lines. She basically said I couldn't, she couldn't deliver my baby at the Portland anymore. So I had to start another wild goose chase to find um, the care that I wanted. And at this point I had already 
been like, I absolutely adored Ina May Gaskin, Pam England, uh, Janet Velasquez, all of the active birth, taking back your power, um, midwifery books. I was very, um, well-read and well-versed in. So I was trying to recreate that as much as I could. Um, I didn't know home births were really a thing here. I even looked into giving birth at the farm in Tennessee with Ina May. That's how much I wanted to have a natural birth, but it's very difficult to do that when your husband is not American and you don't live in America. So that was not possible. (laughs) Uh, So I looked into how I could replicate midwifery-led care here. Um, In retrospect, I know our first apartment was way too small. We would never have been able to inflate a birth pool in it. It was like a classic small London apartment. Uh, so that kind of, even though I didn't know that midwives, you could have independent midwives come to your house at that point, it wouldn't have worked anyways in that house. So I ended up choosing midwifery led care or midwife led care at the Kensington wing at Chelsea Westminster. I chose it for continuity of care that the care is supposed to be second to none and that the birth center is brand new, beautiful birthing pools. I was literally like, can't get better than this. This is almost like giving birth at home or at the farm. Um, hopefully it will go well. So I began at my, every one of my appointments. I made a concern, concerted effort to meet each one of the six midwives to build a rapport with them um, so that there wouldn't be any surprises in my birth. And it care was okay. It was very boring and straightforward. I was low risk. I know in retrospect, I know... There were a lot of little flags where they didn't see me as a person or take me on a case-by-case basis. For example, I didn't know I could decline the glucose test. I also didn't know that low-risk women shouldn't even be given that. I know this now, which I've now declined, and also my midwives would not recommend giving it to me at my new care center, so that's great that it is a little bit different this time, but... In that pregnancy, I was completely, I fell through the cracks in every regard. I was low risk, so I was not really cared for as a person, more so just like a boring, straightforward, oh, this is your 28-week checkup, this is your 32-week checkup, this is, and that's how it kind of progressed. Um, It was... Around 38 weeks, all during my pregnancy, I had been doing osteopathy and reflexology and acupuncture weekly (laughs) to try to feel better, which didn't really, didn't help, even though I'm a huge believer in alternative and complementary therapies. This pregnancy was just a doozy. Um, I could not get my head above water. I also was in therapy and it just, it was a violent and dark pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, I know now that I had antenatal depression and... As I got closer to my due date, I was definitely aware of the feeling that I was on a diving board and I was being pushed off to the edge. Um, and there was a lot of pressure for me. I felt that I needed to birth this baby on somebody's arbitrary schedule, even though my cycles were 32 days. My period cycles were 32 days. So I I just I knew I was going to give birth later. That's just how my body felt like it was going to work. And that's indeed what happened. Um, so when I started to get 38 weeks, I was like, all right, let's start doing natural induction. 
because I'm definitely super aware that my care, the Kensington wing would discharge me to the NHS if I went past 42 weeks, things like that, which were very stressful because you don't just suddenly become 42 weeks, but for some reason at the Kensington wing, I did, which I'll tell you about in just a second as well, what I mean. Um, it was all... It's all very frustrating because I, at my 41 week appointment, they're like, great, we're going to book you in for a stretch and sweep. Again, I know a lot more now. I know about birthrights. I well read in AIMS um, and NICE guidelines, all these things. But at the time I didn't know I could reject a stretch and sweep. Um, And just anyways, that didn't matter (laughs) that what happened happened and it wasn't my fault how it happened. But I booked in for a stretch and sweep. They said they would notify my linked consultant, who was Roshni Patel, and it was all noted in my notes. No real curveballs. I tried, that was for the Friday, which was like April 13th, I think. Um, Maybe earlier, shoot. Uh, And I tried castor oil and uh, parsley leaf tea reduction on the Thursday. And that did help move my mucus plug. And I definitely started a little bit of labor and then it fizzled out. So that was just a little latent labor. Oh, I also remember this was another thing too, where I felt pretty isolated in my pregnancy. I didn't have any Braxton Hicks ever. And everyone's like, Oh, that, that's like a, it's like such a through line in every birth story or like mom who would talk to me, they would always be like, Oh man, are you having Braxton Hicks? And I was like, no, <laughs> hope I'm okay. Um, so I didn't have any, any false labor, any practice, any Braxton Hicks until the castor oil, when I began a little bit of labor, um, that fizzled out. So I still went to the stretch and sweep. I was one centimeter at the stretch and sweep and that was at 9 30 PM at night. This was also a great little indication of how my labor was going to go, which is I got to the hospital and nobody knew I was coming. They were frantic, didn't know who to have do my stretch and sweep. Um, I was just kind of sitting in a room at nine 30 at night. Cause that's when they booked us in, which I feel like it's a weird time to have a stretch and sweep, but I have very, anyway, um, I had the stretch and sweep, which was not a fun experience. Did not enjoy that. I started labor around 11 PM that night, pretty shortly thereafter. So I didn't sleep. Yeah, I didn't sleep just so you know, going forward, my last night's sleep, which was a terrible night's sleep, I wrote in my journal that I had a 4.30 a.m. cry in the shower with a rice cracker on that Thursday morning. So all that fun chat about sleep while you can before the baby comes. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, that's another thing too, actually. I did want to bring up, I did not sleep well at all my whole pregnancy. And I cried a lot by myself at 2.30 in the morning. My hips were bruised. I was having... I was depressed. I I was not having a fun time. I felt awful and I did not sleep well my entire pregnancy. So that was the other thing too. When people would say those annoying little cliches that are quite reductive and placative in general, which are, you know, those little like, Oh, let's do small chat about pregnancy and like also reduce everything that you're feeling. Oh, it's going to be so fun. I would get really angry and that made me feel even more isolated because I was like, yeah, but in in reality, I'd be like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to try. It's a good point. (laughs) Um, That aside, (laughs) that might be some misplaced anger or maybe it's appropriately placed anger. Hmm. Um, I went in to this labor 
already tired. <laughs> and I tried to make it fun in the middle of the night. When I started that Friday night, I was listening to like Post Malone. <laughs> he sings a really nice cover of uh, Return of the Mac. And I was trying to kind of like do nice pelvic circles in the shower and you know, all the things that Ina May Gaskin said, which is like, what gets your baby out is the same thing that caught the baby in. So I was trying to be close with Rupert and, um, it was really hard because my contractions were really hard and intense and furious out the get go. So they were like every four to five, I had four to five contractions every 10 minutes. So they were intense and nonstop. And it was hard to um, enjoy the gentle ramp up of labor because I didn't have a gentle wrap up ramp up, excuse me. So I basically, uh, we had our doula come over around 2 AM. She was lovely. Emily Roberti. Um, she was the only reason why I had a slice of dignity in my entire labor, which I really hope I remember to tell you about. <laughs> um, we got, Basically, my contractions were, I really wanted to call them surges, but they were more so like when you have the stomach flu or else food poisoning, when you're just thrown onto your knees to vomit, that's exactly how contractions or surges were for me. They were so intense and so furious. (laughs) I had bruised knees and wrists easily into the first three hours of labor. It was not a fun or gentle um experience. And I went to the hospital around 2 PM on that Saturday, which was April 14th, 2018. And I got there and there was nobody I knew in the whole maternity ward. The midwives were all different. My OB was not there. I, everything was new. That was not a fun start to my labor experience either. And I got there and I thought it was going to be around eight centimeters and I was only three. That was pretty disheartening, but not as disheartening as this was what I meant by how can you just suddenly be 42 weeks? Cause it's like, you have plenty of time <laughs> leading up to it. You have 42 weeks before you become 42 weeks. But in this instance at the lovely Kensington wing, um, the midwife who was on duty said that she was going off of a different scan than what all my other caregivers were going off of. So actually I was in fact 42 weeks. So I wasn't going to be able to birth or labor in the birth center because that's not allowed. And um, everything was going to be quite a bit different because my placenta was now suddenly old. That was very frustrating. Rupert and my doula had to fight for me to go to the birth center because it was ridiculous. Um, Just infuriating. Um, In the meantime, while I was trying to get to four centimeters, because you had to be four centimeters in order to go to the birth center, I tried gas and air. It made me vomit everywhere. I got like a two octave lower voice from it for some reason. I had never heard in all the birth stories I listened to heard of that happening. Uh, and I knew that that was happening and happened the whole time I was on gas and air because my mantra was open on every exhale to try to keep nice and slow breathing. I tried to talk so I didn't get like, (sighs) so I tried to say open and it's kind of a cruel slap in the face now in retrospect because it it didn't help me but I was finally able to go to the birth center when I got to four centimeters I continued gas and air in there it felt amazing that was the best part of labor and I got to the point where I was like I'm literally in outer space like I'm in I'm 
near Saturn's rings and I'm here to get my baby. I told that to the midwife. And then my contractions eased up and I was like, I don't need gas and air. I think this is the rest and be grateful phase. And um, the midwife put on her gloves to catch our baby. And instead just mucus blood came out and um, she asked me to get out of the pool so I could have a VE to see how I was doing. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm pretty tired. That didn't really go how I thought it was going to go just then. So let's just see what's happening. And, um, I was only four centimeters dilated and that's when part of me died and I'll never get her back. Me as a woman, I didn't care what happened to me. I didn't want to be a mother. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want anything that was going to happen to me to happen. I was a hundred percent over it. Despondent, catatonic. Um, I walked back to the labor room and I had no more energy. I couldn't even talk normally. I could only whisper. And I told Rupert I can't do it anymore. And that was at 10 p.m. on Friday, on Saturday night. I hadn't slept in a while. Nobody was checking on me. <laughs> Nobody knew me in this hospital. And um, Rupert chatted to whoever was out of the side of the room. I don't know. And just, they decided that an epidural would be a good option. So they asked me and I was like, I don't even care. Honestly, I don't care. That was my greatest fear that and having a C-section. So it's fun because both of those happened to me. <laughs> um, I got the epidural only after having <laughs> be the nurse or whoever puts in a cannula could not figure out how to do that in my right hand. And there was blood all over the bed. My right hand was so bruised. I'll share birth story photos, which I've never shared before either on, um, on the website. So you can see like three weeks later, it was still like crazy bruised. They had to call on somebody else to do it. Everybody on my healthcare team was a joke. I finally got my epidural, which was the worst. I instantly, I could literally see my legs go. I inflated like a blueberry, vomited everywhere. The injection site hurt so much. I couldn't lay down to even rest. I just sat there and basically just, I didn't even have the energy to cry. It was like that point of despondency where you're just like, F this, I'm done. Um, Rupert had to sleep. It was probably 1 a.m. at that time, maybe 2 a.m., um, my doula had to sleep. A registrar came in, which I didn't know what a registrar was. That was a fun new curveball within the UK healthcare system. I had to be like, I'm sorry, what, is, what, what are you? And that basically is like the before he becomes, he or she becomes a doctor. And there you go. <laughs> uh, so this particular registrar was a man and he told me that I had two options, which was to start Pitocin or else to have a C-section. And I needed to decide to buy 6am because we would, whatever route I chose, that would be what would happen at seven. And I knew I had to do a C-section that I would not survive. And the, and my baby, my daughter who had never been in distress this whole pregnancy, oh, I was on fetal monitoring now at this point because my placenta was now old. Um, that was quotes that I did there <laughs> in the air. Uh, she was never in distress. I chatted to her the whole time and just tried to let her know what was going on. Mm. Yeah. It's tough looking back at it in retrospect. 
So I decided I need a C-section. I sat with that quiet decision by myself. I didn't tell anybody for about an hour. Then I woke up Emily and um, Rupert, and I told them what I needed to do. And this was the shred of dignity, which I'm so grateful for my doula for, which is at that point where I literally had nothing left to give, nothing left to fight for. Emily was like, let's get you ready to meet your baby girl. Makes me emotional now thinking about it. And she wiped my face and sprayed nice rose water on me and brushed my hair, which was in mats, and sprayed deodorant and put some essential oils on me and made me feel like a person. Which was ironic because then the on-call doctor, who was Dr. Keith Duncan, he then came and chatted with me about my birth plan and kind of made little quips and scoffs after every single point, which... I had written down because that was very important to me. So, for example, it was a spectrum of quips, but I said that I wanted gentle and quiet music. And he's like, okay, well, I won't put on my rock music then. And I was like, it's kind of funny, I guess. And then it ended with, um, I really wanted to microbiome if I had a C-section. That was really important to me based on the research I'd done. I don't have to defend why I wanted it, but I... Based on his response, I'll always have that knee-jerk reaction now. And he just said, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's not very important. And I just said, okay, because I didn't have any more fight left in me. And um, then I got wheeled into the theater, and I didn't care about anything. And I didn't, I honestly, like, was not on earth. Like, my heart my heart and soul were not on earth at this point since 10 p.m. the night before. I wasn't here. And the C-section happened and my daughter Elle was born and I felt nothing. And I was wheeled back into a recovery room with her. And um, I don't know if I was conscious the rest of the day. I don't remember anything. And I'm really angry because I will never get that day back. And I'll never get to meet my daughter for the first time properly. Uh It's a big grief piece there because I'm like so in love with her now. (laughs) Um, That was really not okay how that happened. It shouldn't have happened that way. Um, I did start breastfeeding again because of my doula who helped with the first latch. And then I was gone the rest of the day. I wasn't there. Um, Recovery was really awful. (laughs) It was not straightforward. I was in the Kessington wing for seven days. At day four, I had a nurse or a ward midwife, I don't even know who these random people were, do an anticoagulant shot, which I think you do for like the first seven or ten days when you have a C-section, which normally you do it in your thigh. She did it into my wound because it was quote-unquote numb, so it would hurt less. And, of course, I developed a hematoma after I had been discharged because of that. I remember when I went home... It was really hard for me to go home. I I knew deep down something wasn't right. And I remember like day eight, we went home on day six or day seven. Day eight, I told Rupert something's really, really wrong. I wasn't able to change Elle's nappies. I was dizzy and hot and struggling. And there's so many dimensions of how much I was struggling. Like this physical stuff, which I will tell you what unfolded from that. And then on top of the just developing postnatal depression and PTSD, which was so dark, I remember crying under pillows 
with my daughter and husband next to me and just thinking, I don't want to be here. Postpartum. That was not fun either. And then Elle was traumatized, as was Rupert, but Elle especially from the birth and did not sleep or feed um, the way that she was supposed to. (laughs) When people would say, sleep when the baby sleeps, my baby literally never slept, and I would get angry and just feel even more isolated. Um, I started to go on my fun, which would become tri-weekly trips to the hospital. My first one started, I think, on day 11 when I got an infected hematoma. Started to develop mastitis, among other things. Um, And Dr. Keith Duncan never put me in the books. He was always like, I'll just pop by. I'll check you out. I'll do a little... Like, as if he was doing me a favor to check on me. (laughs) His responsibility. Um, So I'd come in. He would do a little scan and be like... The first appointment, he was like, let's put you on some antibiotics for that hematoma and let's just see how you get on. That quickly evolved into me having to come in three times a week to get help or try to get help. But he continually didn't listen to me. My bleeding, my infections, he would say, that's normal. Your body's just healing. It's normal. Um, I got to have one other doctor see me during one of those visits because he wasn't working, which was Dr. Vaso, who was great. And she was the first person to realize I had a UTI, I had an E. coli infection, I had really bad mastitis, that were, I needed a different antibiotic for all of these things than what he had been giving me. In total, postpartum, I was on antibiotics 24 days. I bled for 17 days, stopped for a minute, and began again with a vengeance on 23 days, which again, I was reassured that this was normal, but it was not normal. By this point, I had thrown out everything that I had so carefully curated for my first 40 days, which included my postnatal doula care. I had healing binaural beats on YouTube on repeat in our house. I had candles. I had organized craniosacral home visits and reflex all, just all, all the bone broths, everything that I could to create a first 40 days that was like so beautiful and healing and protective. I literally just, I, not metaphorically, I literally threw the books under the bed. And I was like, F this. This is for mothers who are not me. Women get to have this who don't have my story. And I'm not one of those mothers. So another layer of isolation began with that. And um, I stopped being able Yeah, the despondency continued. Um, I was not interested in the first 40 days anymore. It became such a saga. Um, Finally, one of the midwives, even though I I was discharged from the maternity care wing, which is standard procedure at day 28 because you're no longer a maternity patient. I think on day 28, I called and spoke with uh, Miss Colin, who was one of the midwives there, and told her I'm still bleeding. And she's like, Dr. Duncan, please like book in an official scan. And she is the reason why I got the help I needed. So thank you, Miss Colin. I wrote her a thank you note. Because apparently care in this country, or I think more, it's an issue worldwide, honestly, for women to be seen and heard, was not the way, it didn't go the way it should have gone. Responsibility was not taken. Anyway, I had a scan on day 29 with my newborn and my husband by Dr. Duncan. He found something, didn't own up to it, just said, I need to refer you to my colleague. He'll see you today. He'll do another scan and see what our course of action is. That was Dr. Rasa. 
who apparently is supposed to be really good. I was not really that impressed with him, which I'll tell you why in a little bit. But um, he found that there was retained placenta, but not from my, not because of my fault of my body, but because the doctor named Keith Duncan sewed four centimeters of placenta into my wound from the inside. So my body was septic for the last 30 days. That was great. Obviously, you can tell I have a lot of anger about this still. I don't think I'll ever not be angry about that. Um, I booked in the next day. That was day 30 on May 15th, 2018, to have a DNC and hysteroscopy to remove the placenta. Um, The procedure... (laughs) It was my second uterine surgery in in a month, both of which I didn't want. I didn't want the C-section, nor did I want the DNC. Um, Dr. Raza said he'd prioritize me first since I had a newborn. He did me last. I was left alone in the theater for a while, just standing with the, uh, what's that called? Hospital gown, just naked with hospital gown, just standing in the middle of the theater while everyone prepped me alone, just crying in the middle, super emotional. I was so scared that they were going to take breastfeeding away from me because that's the only one effing thing that I could do for and by myself. Um, general anesthesia was not fun. I did not enjoy that either. Um, I got, I want to say, and that was history, but it wasn't, I kept bleeding. I had to go on trans, trans acid for the first time. I had to go on it again a second time, which I'll tell you in a second. I bled for nine weeks postpartum. I started my period at 11 weeks postpartum, exclusively breastfeeding. Didn't know that was possible. I continued to be met with comments like, wow, I didn't know that's possible. Again, fun, um, isolating comments again. (laughs) And then when I did start my period the day before my birthday, I had to go to A&E overnight in an ambulance because I was bleeding out. So that was my second time on transenzymic acid. Had to leave my newborn at home. (laughs) I mean, it's just so frustrating looking in retrospect. It's just not at all what I'd hoped or planned for to leave my baby (laughs) twice in like two or three weeks windows to go back to the hospital, essentially. Um, There's a lot of anger and emotion. So it's this, and this is my first time ever telling my birth story, like in one fell swoop. So it's hard to just be able to think clearly (laughs) because there's a lot of pain still here. Um, And this is not the end of my story either. Uh, I did not pass the mental health uh, test that your GP puts on or gives you at six weeks. She printed out a referral letter to whom it may concern and told me I need to find my own therapist, which was infuriating because I was barely surviving. And then I had to go suss out a therapist and somehow leave my newborn baby to go to therapy. The, I get so angry about mental health and mental health in maternity care because it's just not women or family facing. Um, it's just really not okay. So I had to put a pin in that because I can't, I thought just, just not going to work for me for a while. Um, so then I was unsurprisingly going to hit rock bottom around eight months postpartum. And I had to go to my GP in tears and say, I really need help. And he offered antidepressants without supervision while he referred me, but he told me ultimately it's easier if I self-refer. 
I live in the Brent Council of London, and there's an IAPS program, which is like their um, counseling and therapy program. However, through my own research, I found that they do not offer EMDR or rewind therapy, which are the only appropriate therapies for trauma-based, um, appro- just for trauma, full stop. <laughs> CBT is not appropriate. Um, so that was frustrating, and I realized I was going to have to do this on my own, like everything else I had done in my um, maternity journey and I had to help myself. And luckily my knight in shining armor, who is Rebecca Schiller had a small mention on her resources page about this clinic called the London trauma specialists. And they, I'm still with them today. My therapist is amazing. I have been doing EMDR. She's saved. It's saved my life. <laughs> um, and now I've been doing a little more CBT in general, but, um, I had to and I, I am going to do rewind therapy as well to prep for this birth. So I'm going to give the whole gamut a go of trauma informed um, therapies. But basically, I had to self refer myself to the London trauma specialist and go private. That was the only way I got help. And that is another completely inappropriate, not okay reality for mental health, especially in maternal care, because there's nobody taking care of us <laughs> full stop. Like we have to fight so much harder to keep our babies alive, to keep ourselves alive. <laughs> and, um, that, yeah, I have a lot of anger there. So continuing to move along. Um, the thing about therapy is that it gets worse before it gets better. So I had to go back to my GP in April to get, or at least to ask for antidepressants just so I could stay in the window of tolerance. Cause I was really struggling and um, I met with a locum nurse. Um, sorry, those are my glasses. That's what I'm doing there. Uh, she literally verbatim told me that I should focus on my daughter so I'd feel, quote unquote, less sad. And she even suggested that I look into religion because that had helped her so much. And I'm not kidding. That's literally what happened. So obviously I filed a pals complaint. I was speechless the whole appointment with her. I should have gotten up and walked out immediately. But to be honest, I was so stunned and taken aback by what she was saying. I was, I think I was in freeze mode, to be honest. I couldn't even, I I was like what I am right now, where I just literally can't even articulate what that made me think and feel. And, um, so anyways, that was a fun, another continuation of failure to take responsibility or just failure to provide healthcare within the healthcare community that I've run into. And the thing that also made me so angry is that I am a super privileged person. I know that. And my experience within the healthcare community has been so, um, criminal, frankly, that I know that aspects of my care or even worse have happened to other women or birthing people. And that's not okay. So I filed a complaint with pals after that. And I also complained, filed a formal complaint to Chelsea Westminster after the malpractice. And both times I was met back with a response, basically saying, I'm sorry you felt that way. (laughs) So, uh, moving forward, um, it started actually to get better with therapy. I was able to go to Portugal that summer and remember what it's like to be warm and to see the sun and to touch the ocean, which sound like small things, but they were really big. And that 
began to make me feel like I was a person again. And that was pretty big. And around that time, after almost a year and a half of being like, oh my gosh, I can never, I will never ever be a mom again. I cannot, I will not, I cannot revisit what just happened. Um, But then something shifted in that window. And um, I decided I was ready to call in our next baby. I've always felt two souls super clearly, super strong. This other soul, I felt like almost as close to touch next to my head. I don't know how else to explain it. As soon as Elle was born, I felt this baby being like, whoom. So I knew that, well, I felt that that was going to be the case. But then I did not fall pregnant for 12 months. And I was um, beside myself a lot of that journey. It's weird to be here now where I am, where I am pregnant because there were moments where I was like, it's just not going to happen. When do I start trying IVF? When do I just say, okay, everybody is getting babies. I, I remember I was crying in the kitchen one day because I remember telling Rupert that it felt like all of these babies were choosing all of their mothers or their birthing parents and no baby was choosing me. And that was still makes me emotional. Um, again, themes of isolation because everybody felt, I felt like everybody was getting pregnant and no one was choosing me to be their mom. And I was also scared that the stupid DNC and malpractice, because there was a risk that it would make me infertile, that that was what had happened. And that was really, um, I didn't want to admit that. And I really didn't want that to be the case, obviously, but there was a rage around that as well. And I, I didn't know that I was going to get pregnant again. I really honestly didn't. Um, so when it did happen, it was a huge celebration. (laughs) I remember I ran through the house when I figured out, when I took the test and I was like, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. So excited. Um, so what a roller coaster. <laughs> and then again, a roller coaster because at the 10 week harmony scan, I found out the gender and I'd always felt that this was going to be a girl. And I was very excited about that because I really don't particularly enjoy men. <laughs> I don't like to blanket statement people, but I am in therapy still because of men external to my malpractice birth story. Um, I, I did not want that to be my reality to revisit. I didn't want our family to have men. (laughs) Rupert's very feminine, very gentle, very strong and not aggressive. And I didn't, I'm scared of men. I'm scared of men. I guess that's what it comes down to. So there was a huge grief period when I found that out. And I felt like I was like, almost as if I had lost somebody or maybe I'm really careful and wary of saying this, but it felt like I had lost the baby because I had created this whole world. Apparently there's still feelings around this because I'm still crying, but I had created a whole world around this little girl who was going to come. And I would always be able to call through the house. Hey girls, <laughs> dinner's ready. Um, and I had named her and everything even before I felt pregnant. And I was so excited to have Eve be a part of her name because I think the hero of the story in Adam and Eve is Eve because she defied the patriarchy and 
wanted something more and went after it. And I loved that. And I really wanted that to be a part of our family dynamic. Um, but instead we got a little boy and it was confusing because it made me feel like I was being ungrateful (laughs) because I was so scared and it's very complex and very confusing and no one really talks about gender disappointment either. So that was another layer, like I said, of isolation. Um, but now I'm recording the story at 28 weeks and I can't, I didn't ever think I would feel this way, but genuinely no sugar coating. I feel so grateful and so excited to meet this little boy. <laughs> and it took a lot of work to get here, but now it's so effortless. And I really do mean that. And, um, it's just like a huge privilege to be able to raise a different kind of man, I guess, as well than what I was accustomed to knowing. So a lot of layers there. <laughs> um, also simultaneous to this, I feel like I should also mention that I did breastfeed L for two years. Um, and then even though I know you can get pregnant while you breastfeed, I only fell pregnant one month after I stopped breastfeeding. So it's interesting because I was working with like Cordelia U.S., who's like this amazing guru, um, consultant lactation specialist here in Northwest London, who I recommend to everybody, um, who was so generous with her time and advice. And she was like, you don't need to stop breastfeeding to get pregnant. I have, I think three boys who are proof of that. It's not, um, you can still get pregnant while breastfeeding, but for whatever reason, um, I did get pregnant only after I stopped one month after I breastfed. So what do with that? what you will. I don't, I don't really know what to make of that still, mostly because I'm still reeling from how hard that whole year of not being able to fall pregnant was. Um, so yeah, in general, this pregnancy has been a lot different because the first trimester was, I didn't think I would ever be able to have a harder pregnancy than without, but the first trimester pregnancy with this little boy was so much harder. Rupert had to stop studying for the CFA. He had to throw in the towel for his promotion track because he was full-time taking care of Elle because I was literally bedridden. I thought I had listeria for nine days because it was so bad. I had to have the ambulance come. It was not a fun first trimester, like so much more intense. Again, I didn't think it could get more intense than it was with Elle, but it was the kind where I was like not even able to uh, you couldn't even watch movies being in bed. I mean, I couldn't do that without anyways, cause screens made me nauseous, but you know, when you're really sick and you're just like, just sleeping all day and all night and you're just surviving. That's how it was. It was really intense. Um, but then we were lucky enough to go to Portugal for two months and that changed everything. I'm very grateful for, for Portugal. Um, <laughs> mostly in and of the fact that it uh, it reminds me of home. It looks exactly like San Diego, which is California where I'm from. And there's sun and ocean and nature makes a huge difference for me. And I instantly, not instantly, I can't be that generous. (laughs) I think I went to Portugal at 13 weeks and around 14 or 15 weeks. It instantly shifted. I felt, I felt amazing. I didn't even feel pregnant. I've never felt this way before. It's been amazing. I've been going through huge personal stuff and having to fight for the healthcare that I need with uh, um, Corona 
restrictions, which is not fun. And there's a lot of injustice there and it makes me very furious. Um, but even with all of that heaviness and density, I feel great, which is just so welcomed. And I'm so grateful every single day. Um, and I'm not waking up and crying at two 30 in the morning. So maybe therapy's helped. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's just a different experience right now. And I'm very grateful for that in a not cliche way. I don't know how to say that. Not cliche. <laughs> it's just very welcomed. Um, I think my other thing I wanted to share too postpartum is just how hard it was for me to make friends because I've had such an isolating experience from start to end. And, um, PND and PTSD don't really, it's not a great foundation anyways to meet and be friends with people. But for me, I had a really hard time talking to other moms after little baby classes and I get so stressed because like they're able to talk so easily about things that are fun, like their babies or clothes or parents coming into town or like trips. And I couldn't, I, or even their birth stories. Um, I felt like I was Debbie Downer. So I just would stay quiet and I eventually just ended up kind of running away from every class right afterwards. And I, um, it's been really hard to make friends, to be honest. It's not really that fun of a thing to say because everyone wants to be like, oh, I have so many friends. <laughs> um, but I definitely feel like a stranger in a strange land. And it's not just physically in England, but also metaphorically as a mother in motherhood land. I feel like I'm still a stranger. So um, yeah, it's been pretty, it's been a doozy of a journey. And that's also why I feel like I have to fight so hard in this pregnancy for my maternity care to make sure it's different. And um, I still get heat rash every time I go to my antenatal appointments. I have to go to war. I feel like I literally have to put like the black stripes on my cheeks. I was for some reason just, um, oh my gosh, marking that, pretending to do that, even though you can't see me. And um, yeah. It's just very, it's very tiring and overwhelming. So I think my main goal as well with this podcast is, um, I just want to make space for all emotions and all stories. I remember feeling so again, isolated because postpartum when I would check like on, there's a few birth story platforms here in the UK and most of them exclusive all of them exclusively center on positive or good quote-unquote birth stories and then there's usually a little addendum at the end of the page being like p.s if you had a traumatic or not positive birth you should get help and it's like okay (laughs) okay so anything that's not real for me is not welcomed and that feels very invalidating to trauma and just to myself as a person that's another thing I remember people said to me postpartum as well with Elle being like, oh, at least she's healthy, or at least you're okay down there. Or at least, you know, y- you can know that you did your best. And I would just get so livid because I was like, oh my gosh, I know I did my best. Elle fucking did her best. Excuse me. We all did our best, but nobody else did. We all showed up except for the healthcare professionals. And like, I'm not okay down there. I was not okay down there. There was a lot of trauma. I did not, I could not sit with post C-section. <laughs> I did not feel like how all these women who had vaginal births 
implied I should feel having a C-section. Um, yeah, there's still anger there as well. I just really resent and don't take kindly to any sort of reductive comments like that. It's just, just not healthy and not helpful. So that's my thought on that. <laughs> but I, my main, circling back to the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is as well, the reason why I'm so anti-toxic positivity, because essentially that's what it is implying. If you don't have a good quote unquote or positive birth story that it's not welcomed in the world, that that's not what being human is because human being human is not binary. It's not good or bad. It's not happy or sad. It's not, it's usually a duality or more a combination of contradictory elements or emotions all in one go. And that's also what birth is. And I really want to make space for women and birthing people to tell their stories because I just think it's such a disservice personally having been through a traumatic birth and then being encouraged to stay silent because I don't feel welcome to tell my story or that it's, um, it's just a lot. That's, I think that's more, that's a collective trauma. I think for women and birthing people that we are putting out there to keep people carrying their story in silence, their stories in silence, excuse me. So I think it's time that our stories reflect being human and including everything especially because that's how things can change. And that is a really big vendetta for me (laughs) is I need things to be different for other mothers and birthing people going forward. I don't want what happened to me to happen to other people. So with that, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to share birth stories um, to and with you. And I can't wait to share your stories. And next week I have a really special guest who also happens to be one of my best friends and she um well I'll let her tell her story but I'm very excited to have her so tune in and just know I'm so glad that you're here see you next week all right it's recording make it talk Daddy didn't have a hat for